You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hello, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Today we hear some good news from Victoria, but unbelievable as it might sound. The government made some announcements around a renewables lead recovery a couple of weeks ago. So I caught up with Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth to find out some particulars. On the same theme, in a sort of a way, I spoke with Daniel Herborn about ethical superannuation, what is meant by ethical and how it might work for the social good. We move on to Over the Wall, where Peter Davis is looking at the Social Security Rights Network's Disability Support Pension Help webpage service. COVID doesn't mean the US has ceased its sanctions on Venezuela and we have a fascinating update on the situation. Kevin is back with an update on the week and we finish with a word with Don Sutherland about the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign and the alternatives. Hi, these are weird days. Many of my days are weird days, actually, but these are weirder than most. It can be a bit of a seismic shock to wake to the news of daily tolls here and in other countries, to spend week after week separated from friends and family, hour on hour, of many of us just within our own homes. But through all of this, we are also seeing so much to inspire hope. People are creating incredible networks of mutual aid. Gardens are thriving from all that lockdown attention. We are finding new ways to slow, connect and reflect. Artists are creating, kids are learning differently and activists are imagining and collaborating on new futures beyond this time. And 3CR is continuing to broadcast throughout this coronavirus remotely. Who knows how long this will have us all locked down, but don't let it get you down. Tune in and love up your community. Stay connected. Work for what has to be a better future ahead. Thanks, CR, for staying steady on the waves. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Some politics with your Wheaties on 3CR, your community radio station. There has been a lot of plans that put renewables centre stage when it comes to economic recovery as we come out of COVID, a resetting of the economy and societal priorities. But the Victorian government's recent announcements around renewables is the first tangible response of this sort that I've come across. And so I asked Lee Eubank, a renewables campaigner at Friends of the Earth here in Melbourne, about it. So uh, some good news coming out of Victoria about a renewables-led recovery. Uh, Can you give us some specifics? Because it's 
obviously moving against the tide with the federal government that's so in love with fossil fuel. Yeah, that's right. Look, um, so last week we had some really good news um, for the climate community. We had the Andrews government in Victoria announce another renewable energy target round. Um, so they, w- they will be um, rolling out another 600 megawatts of solar and wind. And that will be enough to repower all of the trains, um, all of the hospitals and all of the schools in the state. And um, along with that come some other benefits. So we have probably around 700 plus jobs in manufacturing and construction, another 100 plus jobs in operations and maintenance. And, you know, it will actually cut around 1.4 million tonnes of carbon emissions a year, which is pretty incredible. Well, that's fantastic. So uh, I noticed that there were some uh, other things that you were talking about, which is, uh, one, uh, you were talking about the um, effect of community uh, push for change having an effect, and that leads on to further discussions about things like, I guess, the uh, uh, wind Um, offshore wind farm idea and things of that nature other kind of projects yeah that's right you know uh, i think what we can what we can take away from this government's announcement is you know they are kind of sending up a little bit of a trial balloon about how the community will respond to a renewable-led economic recovery and um, it's really important for the community to, you know, have its voice heard at the moment and really give the government a pat on the back for this, because if we do, um, we might actually see them go a lot further when they release the budget in a few months' time. And, you know, I think from Friends of the Earth's point of view, we think there's a, a lot of work that can be done around bringing an offshore, indus- uh, offshore wind industry to the state of Victoria to jobs rich rich industry um, with great potential to create opportunities for the um, the workforces that are currently employed by offshore gas and coal and we would love to see greater investment in public transport infrastructure so that we don't need to rely on polluting cars and trucks and lastly you know if we're going to have an economic recovery that's good for the community and good for climate we do need to set some bigger overarching goals and we think that science-based emissions reduction targets can be the mission that really underpins and drives the economic recovery. Well, it's interesting because there's been a, a, a load, about four different plans put forward and I'm sure you have a plan too uh, that does put uh, renewables uh, into the centre stage for economic recovery. Uh, but uh, Mm -hmm. the federal government hasn't really picked it up. So it's actually quite uh, a relief that uh, uh, one of the governments, Victoria, has taken it up, Uh, important stuff. Uh, When you say uh, you think that this is a beginning, can you give us an idea of uh, what you think is the road forward? Look, there's just so much that can be done at the state level. Um, you know, when it comes to rolling out renewables and cutting emissions, you know, things really do hit the ground um, at the state level. So, you know, I think it would be um, it would be great to see the government invest in, you know, a feasibility study for the Melbourne Metro 2 tunnel, 
um, and that, you know, we do have the Melbourne Metro 1 tunnel being built at the moment, but we do need to, um, to you know, create that pipeline of construction projects in order to keep that workforce in the city, in the state, and to, you know, do the planning and, and resourcing to, to um, you know, keep that workforce employed. Um, we also would love to see, you know, a, a lifting upwards of the renewable energy targets. You know, I think we're, we're coasting to 50% renewables now, and um, with ambition, we could do much greater, you know, 75, why not 100% renewables by the end of the decade. And, um, yeah, I think finally, as I mentioned before, offshore wind, it is a jobs-rich sector. Um, we know that the sector is working collaboratively with unions and making sure that workers have really good um, working conditions abroad. There's no reason why we can't do the same thing in Victoria and really become, you know, the uh, the leading state, the first state to have an offshore wind energy sector. So what you're really talking about is uh, from from infrastructure, uh, way of life, and basically resetting the entire economy so that it can actually have a future rather than be looking backwards to um, a, a world that uh, was built on oil, basically. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you, you know, if you look at the federal government, you know, they're trying to push fossil gas as this kind of uh, panacea to the economic woes that we're experiencing. Um, but I don't think any economist in their right mind would think that that's going to deliver for the community. It's not going to deliver for, um, for for the business sector. It's actually going to hitch our economy to outdated fossil fuels that don't really have a future. And very fortunately, you know, in, in the last two weeks alone, we've seen the Victorian government back renewables. Um, we've seen the New South Wales Liberal government talking about hydrogen and renewable energy and um, only yesterday we saw the Queensland government announce 500 million dollars for renewable energy so increasingly the Scott Morrison government is looking isolated with its um, you know obsession with fossil fuels. So COVID is potentially an opportunity for change really isn't it? Yeah you know uh, you know a crisis is an opportunity it all depends on how we respond and you know if you think about it um, you know all of the uh, you know all of the, the debt, the national debt that has been accrued to you know help um, you know the present citizens of, of this country survive the economic um, crisis linked to the, the pandemic. You know we should actually be investing in things that benefit future generations when we rebuild the economy, and you know that's why we do need to have a focus from governments on you know renewable energy. Uh, public transport, things that bring emissions down rather than keeping us addicted to fossil fuels. So what's Friends of the Earth's next step? Yeah, look, we've got plenty going on. It's a hive of activity. Um, we're all working from our, our bedroom and lounge room offices at the moment under lockdown. But um, one of the things we're doing at the moment, we're calling on our supporters to to email the Victorian government and we've set up an online webpage that people can do that. So if folks go to melbournefoe.org.au, vret underscore two underscore action, 
that will allow you to send an email to the Treasurer and other key ministers just to let them know that we do acknowledge the renewable energy announcement and we would love to see them build on the momentum. And, um, you know, as for the, the kind of campaigning work that we're doing, we have Yes to Renewables making the case for, for building offshore wind. We've got sustainable cities uh, collaborating with communities who are resisting the Northeast Link toll road and um, working with people that are supportive of, of greater investment in public transport. And um, I'm currently doing some work with the Act on Climate Collective, and we're developing a people's climate strategy for the state of Victoria. And it's going to set out for the government what needs to happen to rapidly cut emissions and to make sure that communities have some level of protection against the impacts that are now locked in. Thanks for talking to me, Lee. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and um, hope you go well. Yeah, you too. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR. Activists have been working to force our financial system to respond to climate change, human rights abuses and indeed workers' rights issues. And one of the ways is the development of the concept of ethical superannuation. What does it mean and how can you, as a superannuation holder, if you are one, influence how the big end of town uses your funds? I spoke to Daniel Herborn, who is a journalist who works for Super Consumers Australia, who were partnered with Choice about this area. I'm very interested in uh, the concept of ethical superannuation. Uh, activists have seen it as being a method by which uh, uh, we can shape a better future. Uh, but it's obviously a far more complicated thing than most people imagine. Can you talk to me a little bit about the vagaries of the concept of ethical in relation to superannuation? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's a quite fast-growing field, um, quite new. As you point out, there is a fair bit of complexity there. So basically in Australia, um, we have a couple of different uh, groups that you could call ethical super. So there's four super funds that have been Responsible Investment Association of Australia. That's the certification body. Um, so that means all the all the options that they have are certified as ethical. Um, then there's another group of um, often quite mainstream funds, often big funds, and they'll just have one option or a couple of options that are certified as ethical. Um, and then there's a whole range of super that's sold as socially responsible super or sustainable, socially aware. These kind of terms, um, they don't have strict rules about what they invest in. That's a little bit more open-ended, um, but that's another form of what you could call ethical super that's out there. So in actual fact, it's a little bit like greenwashing, you know, where they'll say that a food is green, but it's got a whole range of elements to it. Can you give us some uh, idea of, say, AMP as an example? It, it has certain... Uh, items on its list which it would uh, term as ethical? Yeah, um, yeah, you're right to say that there is a bit of greenwashing going on in this field. Um, one thing I'd say is if you if you are interested in investing your super ethically, um, make sure you have a look at, at the portfolio holdings. So a good ethical super fund will have all those investments listed for you to have a look at. Um, some of the socially aware or sustainable options either disclose only a limited amount of what they invest in or don't disclose at all. So it's very hard to know if it matches up to your values. 
Um, so AMP Capital is one you mentioned. Uh, they supply a socially responsible option to a number of different super funds. Um, so it does invest in some some companies like some big banks, some fossil fuel companies uh, that may not match up to everyone's expectations around what ethical super is. Uh, so part of their reasoning for that is that they, they do want to have a diverse portfolio. Uh, so the idea there is that they, if you overly invest in one particular industry and it slumps, um, that's a risk for investors. So the more industries you invest in, the more you safeguard against that. So an example would be something like um, airlines or airports. If you were solely invested in that recently, you would have seen your savings go backwards, but you can guard against that by having a wide range of investments. Um, so that's one reason why AMP Capital has some investments that might not strike people as, as particularly ethical. Um, they also do like to kind of choose companies they see as the more sustainable within those fields. So you might have a, a miner that they see as more sustainable than, than its peers or a bank that uh, treats its customers better than its peers. Um, so it's not quite the case that they're screening out every company they see as unethical. Um, at the moment, they're screening out some of the more egregious offenders. Yeah, so uh, that's really the point, isn't it? Uh, it's a little bit like uh, the um, idea that, uh, say, a government will uh, work with a, a company uh, like uh, Miami or somewhere where they're, um, they uh, give them training in uh, various things saying that uh, by involving themselves with uh, a group that uh, are considered to be uh, less than um, uh, flattering when it comes to human rights that uh, you can change the culture by involving yourself and pushing for change. Yeah, absolutely. So so what some funds uh, do is they take what's called an engagement approach. So they will retain uh, shares in a company they see as, as doing the wrong thing or as a company that's harming the environment or their community. And the idea there is that they can use their voice as a shareholder. They have a seat at the table. They can vote on resolutions. They can engage with the company more directly. And the idea is that they can um, drive change from within um, so there are some funds that have embraced that approach um, quite strongly. There are other funds that are more on the divestment side of the fence. So they're more interested in just pulling out their investment in any industries or companies they see as problematic. It's actually very complicated because uh, you have a, a system which is driven by uh, development of all sorts. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it... Um, and because it's about uh, livelihoods, because investments are about livelihoods, not just profit, um, it becomes quite entangled, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so returns are obviously hugely important in the super space. Everyone wants to have a, a good lifestyle in retirement. I think um, one thing we can say about returns is there are a lot of funds in Australia that have embraced uh, what's called responsible investing, which is not quite as, as strict as, as being a certified ethical fund. Um, but they've embraced strategies like ESG screening. So that's environmental, social, social and governance screening. Um, so the idea there is that companies that are, are run well, that obey the law, 
that are not harming the environment, that treat their communities well, that those companies will actually perform better in the long term. So they'll provide more value to their members. And we know that the super funds that have embraced this kind of screening and are getting getting probably deeper analysis of their investments, they are doing better. So that's that's a really interesting development in Australian super. Does that mean that they use a point system in the same way as, say, you would have a, um, a risk management strategy? I'm not sure if any of them use a, a point system as such. That's definitely one way you could do it. But yeah, it's definitely a risk management strategy. It's looking at um, the environmental and social aspects of a company as investment risk. So it's kind of combining the two worlds. It's not just looking at whether these companies are doing good um, in a bubble. It's are they doing good? And if they are doing good, will that add long-term value that makes them a viable company for super fund to invest in? Can you give me some idea about a, a more strictly uh, a strict certification approach to uh, ethic, ethical funds? What, what's that entail? Yeah, so probably the strictest uh, fund in Australia is uh, Future Super in terms of what they invest in. Um, so they've totally uh, moved away from all the fossil fuel companies. Um, they've moved away from the big banks. I think they're maybe the only fund or one of the very few funds to have done that. Um, and also kind of embracing impact investing. So investing in um, companies not just for their financial return, but for their for them to be able to meet specific social and environmental goals. Um, so that's a fairly new fund. It does, some of its options uh, do have quite high fees. Um, so that's something to factor in. But that's, yeah, that's one worth looking into if you really want to uh, get your super out of, of industries that are seen as harmful for the environment. So um, that, that was where it was leading. Um, it's a little bit like the way uh, electric uh, electricity is. You can opt into uh, a green um, system and it will cost you more money. So is that what's going on here? Uh, in terms of fees, yeah, we, we did have, I did talk to Future Super and they, they were quite open about um, they have different options and the option that they see is having the most impact on the environment does also have the highest fees. So that's that's a, something to, to factor in if you want to go down this path. Um, I would say in general, fees in this sector are a bit higher than the mainstream. Um, but there are some examples of uh, socially responsible options or even certified ethical options that do have lower fees uh, that are more kind of based on investing in shares that maybe don't have the diversity of some other super fund options. Um, but yeah, fees is definitely an important thing to look at if you go down this path. So it's quite easy to overlook fees, but the Productivity Commission found that a, a 0.5 difference in fees uh, can add up to a $100,000 difference in your retirement savings over the course of your working life. So definitely an important thing to factor in. Why are the fees so high, do you think? What What's their reasoning? Um, I guess they, yeah, I guess they're expending resources into analysing the companies um, more strictly. I'm, I'm kind of putting words in their mouth a little bit at the moment. I'm not sure they've articulated it this way. But I guess um, if you just invested in an ETF, for example, and, and didn't look at the companies below it, that would be a cheap way to invest. What's ETF? Um, if you're spending time. What's ETF? ETF, so that's exchange traded fund. Okay. Um, so that's a, a cheap way. To, uh, you can do something like you can invest in the whole 
uh, ASX 200. So you can invest in the 200 biggest companies in Australia uh, with just like one investment. Um, and that's a quite cheap way to do it, but you also have no screening. So there could be any number of companies in there that you see as unethical. Um, so those kind of low cost, uh, more passive investment strategies, they, they tend to be cheaper than you know humans kind of combing through annual reports, coming through business statements, looking to shell companies, um, getting a good feel of what the companies are doing. Yeah, that all takes time and, and resources. So that may be one reason why they're, they're more expensive. Yeah, it's very complicated, the financial area, and especially when you talk about shell companies. <laughs> it's all very... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so you spend a lot of time looking at all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, we've been doing a, over at uh, choice, choice.com.au, we've been doing a bit of a, a deep dive into the area. Um, so the latest piece that we've got up looks at uh, what funds, what these funds are investing in. Uh, we've also looked into the disclosure issue previously. Um, so that's a, a area where Australia is really lagging behind our international peers. There's a real lack of transparency in this sector. Um, some of the advocacy groups have been campaigning on this for quite a while. Uh, that changes to the law were actually proposed way back in 2010 that still haven't happened. Um, so that is frustrating for people interested in this sector that you often can't see what funds are investing in. Um, so we've got some content on that and also on the different investment strategies in this space, which is quite an interesting field as well. Mm, yeah. Um, there's a lot more interest these days in uh, uh, trying to have an effect with this huge pool of money effectively is it's correct right yeah absolutely it's a fast growing sector i mean it's still it's still a quite small sector so the biggest um ethical fund in australia australian ethical um last night i checked i think they had around fifty thousand members compared to australian super which is the biggest fund and has over two million members so it's growing quickly but it's going from a small base uh, but the other thing I'd say there is increasingly the big mainstream funds are be becoming interested in these ideas and are embracing things like ESG. Uh, so it's not quite the case that the certified ethical funds are the only ones interested in this. Uh, that's not the case at all. Um, increasingly, the mainstream funds are seeing value in this and uh, seeing value in looking into the investments more holistically and uh, seeing if they're good in for the environment, good for the community, seeing if they're going to be sustainable companies that will provide long-term value. And that's how these yeah, ideas are filtering into the mainstream. I know that a lot of people uh, who are workers who have activist views uh, feel that um, the, their funds, superannuation funds, should uh, help to generate jobs and generate a safe uh, future. Uh, and that includes climate um, sustainability. So uh, the, I was wondering if uh, there is any interest in uh, using some of the funds to seed things like cooperatives and things like that. Have you ever seen? Have you seen anything of that sort? Uh, not cooperatives specifically. It's an it's an interesting idea. Uh, definitely, yeah. A lot of the bigger funds are embracing kind of large scale infrastructure projects. Uh, things like renewable energy, green property. Uh, so they're definitely mindful of creating jobs. Yeah, as you say, that's that's going to be a, it is already a huge issue and, and will be a, a massive issue going forward. So, 
Yeah, there's around three trillion dollars, almost three trillion dollars in in Australian superannuation. So, yeah, people are increasingly kind of getting the idea that uh, that money could be harnessed for activist means. Um, yeah, as I say, it's it's quite a new field. So we're just yeah we're just seeing those developments start to play out. Did was there any discernible effect um, on this area from the uh, uh, investigation Royal Commission into the financial? Area? Uh, not particularly, actually. I don't. I don't think they're. Um, yeah, I don't think the Royal Commission looked into ethical super um, per se. Um, I mean, the field was was even smaller back then, just a few years ago. Uh, they definitely looked into. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think they looked into ethical super per se at all. Mm. It's, it's interesting. Um, I was just wondering if uh, larger organisations were, well, AMPs is centre stage really. Uh, those organisations were affected by the investigation into financial areas. And I was wondering if uh, that might also have had some effect on their uh, future thoughts about uh, um, sustainable uh, invest- investments. Yeah, quite quite possibly. I'm not sure if they've kind of explicitly linked those two things together. But um, yeah, as you say, they had a a really rough time at the Royal Commission, had a lot of, um, you know, shady practices uncovered. And, yeah, they have no AMP Capital. One of their um, subsidiaries is one of the leading providers of um, ethical and uh, socially responsible super options. So they've definitely um, yeah, become more interested in that area. Have you got any uh, advice particularly for people who want to be a little bit more uh, involved in what their super might be invested in? What would that be approach? What would be the best approach for them to take? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a really useful tool um, at responsiblereturns.com.au. Uh, so that's put together by the Responsible Investment Association of Australia. And that allows you to nominate a couple of industries or a few industries that you uh, would like to exclude and other ones that you would like to include and see what super options um, come up that have these, uh, like you might want to um, exclude um, any investments that include animal abuse or human rights violations or fossil fuels, anything like this. And you might want to include uh, renewable energy investments, green property, these kind of things. So this will show you all the the super funds and options um, that match up with your values. Um, Other than that, I'd say... It's kind of disturbing to think that there would be a list of human abuse industries, (laughs) you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. Yeah, a bit of a worry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, arguably they should should all be filtered out. But, um, yeah, and also look at uh, performance. So we think that five years is a a reasonable term to look at. not super relevant what funds are doing month by month or year to year um, but if it's if a fund's been performing well for five years that's probably a reasonable indication it's it's one of the better funds and also uh, look at fees and make sure the fees um, you're paying out too high because they, they can have a massive impact on your retirement savings in the long haul. Hi this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio 3cr.org.au.
This week on Over the Wall, we speak to Dermot Williams, a community lawyer who's involved with the Disability Support Pension Help Project, the DSP Help Project, as part of Social Security Rights Victoria Inc. organisation. Can you please introduce Social Security Rights Victoria? Sure. So Social Security Rights Victoria is a community legal centre, a statewide community legal centre that helps with social security and Centrelink matters for uh, Victorians. Can you please discuss the Disability Support Pension Help Project? When and how did this project emerge? So the DSP Help Project is a project that we've started at the start of this year in February 2020. It's been made possible with funding from the Victorian Legal Services Board. The project is aimed at creating an online resource and a wraparound legal service that can help people understand, apply for, and in some cases appeal the DSP. So we're really trying to bring all the information that someone could need to make an application for the DSP together, put it all in one place, and then provide additional support where need be. What are the issues you see with access to disability support pension? Yes, so there are a few major issues that we see people come across all the time. A typical situation is a person will be unable to work for whatever reason, whether it's injury, illness or disability. They'll go to Centrelink to get support and they'll be put on Newstart or JobSeeker and they'll make an application for the DSP. What will then happen is they will be rejected because they didn't understand the requirements, they didn't have the right medical evidence, they didn't really know how they were being assessed. And they'll come to us at that point saying, look, I don't know what's happened. I don't know how to get on the DSP. I don't know why I've been rejected. And the way that we're trying to address that with DSP help or to help these people in this situation is to give them the information ahead of time so that they know what they're being assessed on, they know what they need to do, they know how their doctors can support their application with medical evidence, and they can make a stronger application from the start. It's really about bringing all the information together, in particular, explaining to people and equipping people with the information that they need to get medical evidence from their doctors and specialists that supports their application What we've found is that medical evidence is critical to the success, the chance of success of a DSP application and getting the right kind of medical evidence that addresses the right criteria and the DSP criteria is super important. In the work that we do, we're lawyers, we're a legal service, so we're focused on what the law is and how people can work within that framework and satisfy the legislative requirements to get onto the DSP. We have seen, though, a drop in number of people getting onto the DSP. That's publicly available. And we're always interested in those trends so that we can do the systemic advocacy activities as well. But in the core work, when it comes to helping individuals, we're very much focused on helping them understand the legislative requirements and then getting onto the DSP. In terms of getting the right medical advice and letters, what are some of the things to be aware of? So the main thing to be aware of is that medical evidence is going to be 
one of, if not the most important aspects of the application that you're making for the DSP. So you need to go to your doctors and, and get the medical evidence, and you need to make sure that the doctors have the right tools and resources to give quality evidence. And that's where DSP help comes in. Part of it is producing a medical evidence kit, which people can take to their doctors and use that to help explain what they're after and how the doctor can help. And if an application is rejected, what are some of the other avenues of help that you recommend? I know one of the tabs on the website expressly is about this subject matter. If an application is rejected, there are a number of levels of appeal that people can go through, internal reviews, going to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. In terms of getting help, obviously, we're there to help people in that situation. So they can obviously contact us, Social Security Rights Victoria. You could also contact Victoria Legal Aid. They do work in this area. For non-legal assistance, we normally send people or we have heard people going to disability advocates as well. Having someone support a person through a DSP application and helping them understand what they need to show, what the medical evidence requirements are, and all all those kind of things is definitely helpful. In particular with health workers, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, medical evidence is critical to the chance of success of a DSP application. So having a supportive doctor who's willing to engage with the DSP eligibility criteria and address them directly is super important and super helpful for someone applying for the DSP. And we've discussed today that you're from Social Security Rights Victoria and the Disability Support Help Project, the DSP Help Project website. Are there other organisations that you're working together with around this project or generally just working together around social security rights? Yes. So when it comes to social security matters, we work closely with other organisations. So disability advocates, financial counsellors, community support workers, social workers, those kind of people. Other legal services, I mentioned Victoria Legal Aid does some work in this area as well. And there are other organisations, legal services around the country for people who aren't in Victoria. And you can find them on Economic Justice Australia's website. And listeners, you can find easily the project that we've discussed today. The website is dsphelp.org.au. I'll say it again. It's dsphelp.org.au. And the Disability Support Help Project is a project of Social Security Rights Victoria. You've been listening to Over the Wall on 3CR's Solidarity Breakfast. This is a public service announcement. And number two, you have the right to food money. Providing a cause, you don't mind a little investigation, humiliation.
You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. A little politics to keep the brain ticking over. The Venezuelan Solidarity Campaign ran a Zoom update on the situation in Venezuela, which continues to defend itself from US sanctions affecting their ability to access their gold reserves in the UK and a media campaign that has tarred the country with the reputation as a drug trafficking haven. And, of course, it's got an election coming up. This excerpt from the meeting is from Dr Francesco Dominguez, the National Secretary of the Venezuelan Campaign in the UK. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, Yes, I'm Chilean. Nobody's perfect, you know. Um, this is wonderful. I mean, to be invited by the comrades and friends in Australia to link up together to organize solidarity with the heroic people of Venezuela is just wonderful. So I think I congratulate the comrades for having organized this and certainly I feel honored to have been invited to this. I want to deal with a couple of political things first before going into our campaign work, which I think is quite important. Um, The reason strategically why the United States is attacking Venezuela so intensely is not so much because they hate communism, although they do, but it's primarily because of the decline, economic decline of the United States, which is extremely intense. Venezuela happens to be blessed or cursed, depends on how you look at it, with having the largest deposit of oil in the world. Uh, Venezuela, the present levels of world consumption will have oil for the next 300 years. And the reserves of oil in Venezuela are larger than in Saudi Arabia. Now, there is a twist to this story. It takes between 40 to 45 days for the oil from the Middle East to reach Texas. And it takes about four days for the oil to reach Texas from Venezuela. So if you are a US strategist, you want that oil as soon as possible and as quickly as possible. There is a second important dimension to this strategic decline of the United States, and this this. Venezuela happens to have the possibly the second largest deposits of gold in the world. Um, now, as we know, countries such as China, Russia, Iran, Turkey, and a few others, including Venezuela, are withdrawing from the dollar system in terms of their international trade. This represents a huge blow to the dollar. The dollar monopoly is coming to an end and is inexorable, it's inevitable. So the United States is trying to delay it as much as possible, but I don't think they're going to succeed. They can prop up their currency, which is declining in value, that is to say the dollar, if they were able to get huge amounts of gold Venezuela happens to have them. So if you take these two things, oil and gold, Venezuela is a precious jewel in the ground. There is a small difficulty. There is something called the pesky Bolivarian government that refuses to capitulate 
and give up their natural wealth because they want to use it for social development and to benefit their people. So this is the first dimension. And I think there is a direct proportionality between the intensity of the decline of the United States and the level of aggression against Venezuela. The issue is, and I'm not going to answer the question because I don't want to engage in speculation, is whether the United States, the Trump administration, will do something dramatic between now and November for the election. And the reason is Trump is desperate for a foreign policy victory. So far, it's been failure after failure after failure, not only in Venezuela, but internationally, even though it causes havoc wherever it goes. We'll see what they do. I think their calculation is... It may look easy, but is, this is a tough cookie. Venezuela is well armed, is very well prepared, it's got a huge militia, the people are determined to defend themselves, and so far their resistance is absolutely magnificent. And you don't want to mess with a country like that because you might get stuck. I think that's the calculations of the Pentagon strategy. That's the first one I want to get out of the way. The second one is the issue of tra trafficking and these malignant, malicious international campaign organized by Pompeo and company. The Drug Enforcement Administration have produced reports and also the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime produce annual reports regularly regarding the question of drug trafficking, drug crime and so on. And the Drug Enforcement Administration said the DEA produce evidence which is irrefutable that actually 92% of the cocaine consumed in the United States comes from Colombia. There is a better story to this. According to them themselves, according to the DEA itself, between 7 to 85% of the cocaine that goes to the United States from Colombia does it through the Pacific. Venezuela doesn't have coast in the Pacific. And then on top of that, there is Mexico. So what is left for Venezuela to traffic in terms of cocaine, if anything, is very little. So it's a complete fabrication. There is absolutely no question about it. And it's designed only to use this as a malicious campaign of demonization against the government of Venezuela. I think the Venezuelans have done a very good job in defending themselves And the trouble is that the media does a terrible job in this. Nevertheless, the truth is beginning to come out, particularly now that Uribe is in trouble and all the ramifications of the drug trafficking, paramilitarism and so on are coming to the light. Now, let me bring the discussion to Europe where we happen to be in the Venezuela Solidarity Campaign. From the point of view of Venezuela and from the point of view of the U.S. aggression against Venezuela and regime change uh, efforts, Europe has a strategic significance. And this is, it is this. Nothing, in my view, in our view, justifies and legitimizes U.S. foreign policy more than the abject uh, support that it gets from the European Union. If the European Union were not to go along with the United States foreign policy on Venezuela or anything else, the United States is immediately isolated and it feels the pinch. 
So from our point of view, we have to do everything in our power over here in Europe to complicate, to denounce, to mobilize, you know, political forces, social forces against uh, the support, the abject, there is no other way, other word, abject support that Europe actually provides to European foreign policy, particularly regarding Venezuela. And this is where we have a very important campaign. We began a campaign that now has European-wide resonance, which is a campaign to suspend the sanctions against Venezuela during the period of the pandemic. And this is quite powerful and is quite appealing. And the reason is this, the uh, Antonio Guterres, the General Secretary of the United States, made a statement recently, a few months ago, saying that sanctions should be suspended during the period of the pandemic so the countries that are sanctioned can use resources which are precious in order to fight the pandemic in their own countries, which has been a humanitarian reason, but it's a good reason, it's a good one. A week later, Francis I, the Pope, issued a statement making exactly the same point. That is to say, we have the devil and we have God on the side of suspending the sanctions against Venezuela. And more important than that, from the point of view of Europe, Joseph Borrell, who is the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the European Union, a Spanish socialist himself, not a very bad guy, but you know, capitulates regularly to Europe, to uh, the United States. Um, he also has made the statement that sanctions should be suspended. He's made the statement about four times already which is a clear indication that there is the beginning, and I don't want to exaggerate the point, the beginning of a break between the policy of the United States and the policies of the European Union regarding Venezuela. That doesn't mean to say that the European Union is our ally necessarily. Just to expand this a little bit, to give more flesh to it. Um, the European Union recognizes Mr. Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela, which is a disgrace. Nevertheless, the European Union does not recognize and does not, is not prepared to give the status of ambassadors to all the appointees of Mr. Guaido in Europe, which means de facto, they recognize the government of Maduro and worse or better, as we say, better, as we say in London, the European Union governments actually sent ambassadors to Venezuela and they present credentials to Nicolas Maduro in public ceremonies which appear on national television literally every single time. So the policy of the European Union is completely hypocritical. So this campaign has the support right now of about, I would say, 25 mass political parties of the left. And these political parties are organized on the, uh, you know, parties of the European left. We have to add to these Podemos from Spain as well as uh, Sinn Féin from Ireland. If you were to look at the parliamentary strength of all these parties across Europe, this includes even Eastern Europe. I'm the coordinator of these European campaigns, so I have all the information. 
If you were to look at the parliamentary strength, strength of all these political parties, that is to say how many MPs they have in parliament, we did the last research a couple of weeks ago and it's in the region of 400 parliamentarians that somehow are identifying themselves with this campaign to suspend the sanctions. This doesn't become very active, but you know, there are all sort of tactical considerations. Nevertheless, we are getting there. And our intention is to use this as a platform to make sure that we influence the center-left, that is to say social democracy as much as possible, because we want to make sure that we actually manage to change policy in the European Union so that these, the resources that are being retained illegally by various international financial institutions in Europe start to release and give this money back to Venezuela. Spain has begun to do this already. And Francisco, Francisco, my apologies. Can I just ask you to wrap that up in, in the next minute or so? Yeah. My apologies. Gracias. No, no, that, just give me one, literally one minute to deal with this. The other campaign we have is regarding the gold being retained illegally by the Bank of England, which is in the region of $1.6 billion. It's 31 tons of gold. I think to say it's $1.6 billion is, is an underestimate because now gold is going to the roof. So the amount of money involved is much bigger. And we have a campaign, a petition against, you know, to Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, we are embarrassing them, we are denouncing them, we are you know, doing everything we can, using parliamentary influence, trade unions, and so on. And um, we so far have managed to get 10,000 signatures. We're moving towards 15,000, we want to get 20,000 because the matter which is being decided by the courts that the call should be given to Guaido, it comes for appeal at the end of September. The Venezuelan government, the bank, Central Bank of Venezuela, is going to appeal again. So in that sense, to get 20,000 signatures and, you know, embarrass and put pressure on the government of the UK is quite important, especially now that Guaido is disappearing as a political factor. So we have the chance, it seems to me, to do it. And I want to finish with this. Literally 30 seconds, uh, Chair. There is a very important reason why we need to support Venezuela, not just because of their national sovereignty and their right to their self-determination. But there is also the fact that one of the things that the Bolivarian government has been able to do is to expand democracy to incredible levels, a protagonic democracy, as they call it themselves in Venezuela, coupled with huge social progress for millions and millions of people that were before totally excluded. And this is even supplemented by the efforts of peace and dialogue, which Nicolas Maduro has been, you know, promoting so successfully. And this is what is going to result in the election that is coming up. So everything we need to do to help Venezuela is absolutely worthwhile. Uh, viva Venezuela. Thank you. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time.
stoic solidarity breaking team listener when we've experienced evil so profound so well so evil it makes jack the ripper look like a petty criminal in this case the mass strangulation of the victorian economy and by flow on by symbiosis the true blue aussie economy and by flow on the whole world economy thank goodness there's not yet a universal economy or it too would be a victim of the worst evil we've ever known we have known for years, thanks to the daily warnings by Lord Rupert of Wapping, just how evil state big supremo the pejorative Dan is, but no one could have imagined he was this evil, that he would sink to such depths as saying we must strive to eliminate a deadly pandemic, take steps, albeit extreme, to prevent as many people as possible contracting the disease when the economy simply can't afford such extremes. As sensible, responsible, caring business class spokespeople point out, the cost of elimination is far too high, that we simply can't afford it, must strike a balance, must accept deaths, brackets, other people's deaths, to prevent the truly tragic death, the death of the economy, so debilitated by the disease that that reliable source of truth and balance, the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs predicts unemployment will soar from 7.5% to 20%, thanks to Dan, and no one cares more for workers than the Institute of Public Very, Very Private. Why? For years it's been warning wages and conditions are already crippling the poor besieged economy, poor besieged caring employers, that those struggling employers could employ lots and lots more people if but uncaring workers would lower their expectations. You believe, we put to the Institute of, that government services should be contracted out to the private sector to achieve efficiency and remove the bloated inefficient hand of the public sector. Certainly, government should keep out of the way of business. Uh, but the second wave of COVID arose from contracting out to the private sector. Showing how evil the pejorative Dan is, trying to blame the private sector for his irresponsibility. Hmm, strong logic there. We might criticise the pejorative Dan for contracting out as well, but coming from a different direction, I suspect. One great corporate figure offered a solution to the economic downturn. Remove the dead hand of government, direct quote. So the government should withdraw JobKeeper immediately and stop paying your wages, um, workers' wages, withdraw all assistance immediately like subsidies, grants, allowing trading while insolvent, easing corporate reporting requirements, reducing workers' wages and conditions, that sort of thing. No, no, that is the role of government, brought about because of the numerous problems the efficient private sector faces because of the dead hand of government. Mm, more strong logic. Notice, Viva Profits Energy says that only a government support package can save our Geelong refinery from closing. Uh, so the government would then share the profits. Certainly not. We can't have the dead hand of government dragging down our corporate efficiency. 
following my bad accent, the Pot Calling the Kettle Award of the Week for more contributions the week at list to US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo, Donald Trample the Poor. A couple of examples. Donald boasted the US of could have a COVID vaccine within weeks. A sensational vaccine. Best ever, ever. And when the opposition big uh, vice big supremo candidate Kamala harassed the workers, suggested he might have been just a shade optimistic, a shade hyperbolic, Donald attacked her reckless anti-vaccine rhetoric, totally ignoring his own reckless pro-vaccine rhetoric. And then, if the pot coin McKettle needed any more contributions, he accused the other lot of politicising the issue and... And I repeat, this is Donald speaking, and they'll say anything. Donald? Well, he'd know. He, he's the expert. Sorry, Donald, but your pot coin, the kettle award, will have to be a virtual one because we can't get it to you at the moment. Although this might change next week or the week after when we have your sensational best ever, ever vaccine. Oh, no, no, of course I forgot. You, you've decreed it will only be available to US of citizens and, and then presumably only those who vote for you. You, you wouldn't want to waste it on those commie, greenie, anti-US of violent Democrats. Oh, listener, if only they were the threat to the US of economy that Donald paints them, rather than, if they do win, just returning the US of to business as usual. There's so many contributions to the award, like as Donald whips up panic about commie violence and looting and murder on the streets if he isn't elected, he has also admitted he played down the COVID threat because a good leader doesn't create panic. Not a lie, mind you, just great leadership. In a big double, Donald also picks up the Pat Connelly Vote Early and Often Award for advising his deep-thinking voters to vote by post and then turn up early at the ballot box and vote again, while declaring Democrat votes in the postal ballot will be rigged. Biggest rig ever, ever. Nothing if not consistent, the old Donald. And proving once again there's no need for satirical embellishment. We can't compete. For our young listener, Pat Connelly was a Socialist Party senator credited with urging supporters to vote early and often. True story, bit of self-indulgence here. Pat Connelly chaired the board of 3KZ, then a union-controlled commercial station located upstairs in Trades Hall, where we pre-recorded the Labor Hour for broadcast every Sunday. Joan Coxedge recorded a piece which was dropped, and we discovered Connelly had ordered it be dropped. So from Joan's place next morning, I rang him under a false name, Peter something, as a journalist, because he knew me, and asked why. You and I know, Peter, he shared his wisdom on gender matters. Women are okay from the shoulders down, but, but above the shoulders. <laughs> what a fun life Mrs. K must have had. Fun life, too, for the 2,500 airline that used to be our airline baggage handlers and cleaners and ground staff faced with redundancy with sadly having to be let go after Supremo Alan Joystick announced their jobs would be contracted out. But if they lose their jobs, they'll have no one to blame but themselves. It's their own fault. See, all they've got to do is put in a bid for the contract. And as an aside, if they don't get it, and that's probably why it's called contracting out, out you go. 
and they complain that they'll need help to engage professional consultants to prepare their bid because other bidders will have lots of experience at bidding for other workers' jobs. But how selfish. As Alan pointed out, given the impact of COVID-19 on the business, we will not be providing additional funding beyond this support. And why should they? The airline that used to be throws them a lifeline and that's not good enough for them. They want more and more and more. Beyond this support, Alan said, whatever that support is, he, he didn't say, must be that they can bid for their own jobs as long as they undercut other bidders, which would mean undercutting themselves as well. But they can't expect the exorbitant wages and conditions they've been whooping it up on, living off Alan Joystick's generosity. Oh, and to win the bid, just in case we were thinking they mightn't have to undercut their own wages and conditions, they need to find, Alan said, $100 million a year savings in staff costs and another $80 million to upgrade equipment, which apparently is their responsibility and not the airline board's responsibility, and they've got all of two more weeks to do all that. All of which shows the airline that used to be is all heart, but we recognise that every time we hear Alan's Irish accent decrying governments, the dead hand of government for not handing him enough of the public purse, and workers for crippling his bottom line. Interesting timing of the week. See, there's been more than suggestions that former ABC, among other things, foreign correspondent Peter Barnett, I'll use real names, whose brother Harvey became an arch-conservative head of our security forces, was working for or passing information on to our international security, that is, spying organisations, while working as a journalist. Well, Monday, a former trained killer intelligence person from the Trublavozzi Offence Association, whatever that is, who just loves a bit of trained killing, came out and declared that a journalist passing on information to your own government means you are not an agent or spy. That could have done with a bit of clarification, but did he, they know, what was coming in the rest of the week, that evil Chinese journalists can be spies, but good, good, loyal Troublewazis like Peter Barnett cannot be spies? For a government so upset at the pejorative Dan's economic damage, we have to admire the way they're handling our relationship with a country that takes 40% of our exports uh, for the time being. Finally, and not unrelated to the security lots, watching that vision last weekend of the sorry coppers getting stuck into right-wing COVID deniers, I thought, do they realise these aren't left-wing protesters? What's gone wrong? Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. We are finishing the program with a piece from the MEAA who have been following the Julian Assange uh, affair. Now, Julian Assange was uh, in court on Monday with the uh, in London for the extradition charges that uh, the Americans are putting against him. Uh, this uh, conversation is with Christian Huffinson, who's the editor in chief of WikiLeaks and uh, who's in London at the moment, and uh, uh, Scott Ludman, who has been a long term. A supporter of Julian Assange and his need to be brought back to Australia. Now, it appears that on Monday, Julian Assange was 
re-arrested, apparently, uh, because the Americans have uh, perfected or refined the charges that they want to bring against him. And uh, another thing that came out uh, in the discussion was that uh, uh, the computer that um, Julian Assange was given to be able to look at the thousands of pages of evidence against him uh, had its keyboard uh, glued down so that he could not make any uh, notes. Very strange stuff. Not, not a normal affair. Anyway, here is part of the discussion that was held uh, uh, by the MEAA on uh, Thursday night. Uh, somebody asked, what is uh, Julian's physical and mental state like and how's he sort of holding up at the moment? Uh, it's not in a, a, a good place for obvious reasons. Uh, it was uh, it was presented to the courts a few weeks ago in an administrative hearing that his uh, his health has declined over the last few weeks. Uh, it is an extremely stressful situation, uh, and. Uh, after all these years and years of uh, confinement, it is of course showing, and uh, no wonder it, it has been such a difficult time. Uh, I hope that uh, that he can hold out. Uh, uh, yesterday, I sort of observed that he had maybe gained a little weight uh, since I saw him the last time. Or, and uh, I, I hope that that he is 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 improving a, a bit. That uh, maybe it was the uh, the uh, the suit and the tie and the new haircut. Uh, but uh, of course, he is not in a good place, and he hasn't met his partner, Stella, or his two young boys uh, for all these months, apart from the first visit, which was about ten days ago. I think it lasted only 20 or 30 minutes uh, you know, under ridiculous circumstances where because of COVID, he could not embrace his children. They were sitting there with masks on and it, it's just a, a, if he would cuddle his children, he was under threat of uh, putting in put in isolation, the isolation within isolation. So this is such a troubled situation that uh, is, is of course horrible. Just a little bit on a note of, 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 of generality, it, according to the witness statement, and I think this rings true, we are, we are, we are at such a dark time now with that indictment that uh, it will criminalize journalism in a fashion that we would never have thought of. Uh, we heard from Trevor Tim yesterday, we heard from the Professor Feldstein uh, going to very Good examples, if we go back to the Nixon era, which was the last time there was an attempt to go after journalists on the Espionage Act, but they decided not to because of the First Amendment implications. Uh, but if the practices that are described here in this indictment are to be accepted, if he is extradited, if he is charged and it goes ahead and sentenced on this basis, it, it is such a serious blow to journalism. It would mean, for example, if, if those rules would have applied during the Nixon administration, that would have rendered it totally illegal uh, 
and a crime for Woodward and Bernstein actually to meet up with uh, their source, Deep Throat, and, uh, and have back and forth with him. And going back to the Pentagon Papers, for example, it was revealed but I hadn't heard that the journalists of the New York Times had access to the Pentagon Papers prior to the release. They had access and a key to the room where Daniel Ellsberg uh, was and helped copy the papers. That would have been a crime uh, uh, which could have uh, led to a conviction under the Espionage Act if, that, if, this is, if this new interpretation continues. It goes to show the severity of this, the, the, absolute absurdity and the seriousness of the, the entire case, which of course, as uh, Scott mentioned, is of a pure political nature. Another person asks, what reason did the judge give for excluding the remote access of those organisations like Amnesty International and Penn and some of those ones? She simply said that the, 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 the permission originally had been given by mistake and there was no reason not given, and of course, these organizations do not have uh, any representative in the court. But I am certain, and I heard from a few of them, that they will protest this and, uh, and, and demand explanations because it's absolutely outrageous. Uh, I mean, even I talked to uh, there was one observer that actually was able to get into a side room, which is a, a German MP who uh, has frequently traveled to, to countries to observe uh, trials. Uh, and she was astonished. She said to me, uh, you know, I was recently at a, uh, at a hearing, a trial in Turkey. The limitations of Erdogan's government was, was somewhat there, but uh, compared, to, uh, compared to Old Bailey's setup, uh, this resembled more something you could uh, expect to uh, to see and and uh, and uh, feel in in Belarus and Minsk or, or other countries we we don't think are hold democratic principles or fair justice in high regard. Okay, and um, Scott, I wonder if you could just maybe mention what um, progress you think could be made to get the Australian government to sort of show some interest here. Um, this group that's meeting. They sort of making any headway? Is is Maurice Payne showing any interest? Is there any? What's the outlook there? Oh wow! <clears throat> uh, I I feel like if we knew how to really turn that key, we'd, we'd have done it. Um, we did eventually get a two-page letter back from the foreign minister. I think about a month actually after we wrote to her, and it was a courteous recitation of arguments that we've been hearing since. Um, the, the Rudd era, actually. The script hasn't really changed all that much, that they're, they're treating this as a consular matter. Uh, embassy staff have been in touch um, and we don't interfere in other countries where the rule of law prevails. And so we're not a party to this to this court case. I think uh, Kristen said something at the, at the rally the day before yesterday when they kicked off the hearings was that this matter won't be resolved on legal grounds alone. This is a deeply political case. So that, I suppose, is... If it were purely on legal grounds, I'd be feeling pretty helpless. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have access to the courtroom. I can't get on the live stream. I've got nothing. None of us do, apart from the handful of folk who are allowed in. But it's not purely a legal matter at all. This is deeply political. 
uh, we, for, for folk whose memories go back that far, uh, David Hicks was, you know, never pretended to be a journalist, never framed himself or pitched himself as a national hero. He was accused of quite serious terrorist activities. Political pressure got him out of Guantanamo Bay. His, his family helped get him out and it, it blew up and it turned into a big political issue that even the Howard government eventually was moved. I feel like we haven't clearly hit that critical mass yet politically, but it helps to understand that this is a political question and that Australia absolutely could diplomatically intervene if it so chose. We have to build that critical mass. Nobody's going to come along and do that for us. It, it was enlightening to, to listen to Trevor Tim in the courtroom yesterday. Which is that basically it doesn't really matter whether he is a journalist, that he, because he and, and, and we are talking here about journalistic activity, journalistic uh, endeavor. That, that is that is the thing that is protected uh, in, in the United States under the First Amendment. Uh, you have, uh, especially in our, our 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 days with the internet, you have a, a, the broadening of the scope of how we define uh, a journalist, and it can uh, uh, vary from country to country. That that is that is not really the question here. It is the activity which is purely journalistic. You know, if, if you ask my opinion, of course you as a journalist. I, I I do admit that I was hesitant at first when we met ten years ago. I had been for twenty years and sort of boxed into the main in the mainstream media environment, mostly broadcasting. And so so when we got together to talking about the essence of what his philosophy was and, and and my philosophy as a journalist of what what to it, it didn't take long for me to realize that we were on the same page basically uh, coming from different different angles to the same goal and in terms of how to follow the case courage foundation put together a really good list i think of a dozen or more people who are either in the court or tweeting from the position of, of being able to track what's going on. So if you follow Courage Foundation on Twitter and just access that list, they've batched up people who are credible and keep in track of it fairly closely. I'm, I, I, I don't uh, see much support for Julian, uh, I, if that is a question on, on, on the side of the Democrats. Uh, don't forget that Biden did... Uh, uh, called Julian a high-tech terrorist uh, 10 years ago. Um, there is some uh, indication that uh, his vice president's uh, uh, candidate is, is more uh, on, on, on the side of, of the free press, but how much that will weigh in. Um, but I'm, I'm hesitant to, to think there's going to be any change if there are changes in, in government in, in the US. Uh, and uh, so I wouldn't count on any, any changes there. Any thoughts on that, Scott? Uh, the US political class is just tearing its face off at the moment. Like, it's such a catastrophe. I, I would like to think that because the previous Democratic administration's Department of Justice wouldn't initiate this case because of the First Amendment consequences that maybe we would roll back to that. But I think Kristen's right. How do you stop an atrocity like this once it's started without being accused of being weak on national security? Um, so any con I, don't, I don't think we can make any confident predictions 
either side really what's going to happen in the US in the next three or four months. Yeah, we did, we did learn, of course, after Obama left office that uh, under his administration there was a very careful uh, uh, examination of, uh, of whether Julian Assange should be indicted and the decision was not to go ahead uh, because of First Amendment implications. Uh, and, uh, I mean, they turned every stone in, in, in trying to find an angle on, on that one. It is being argued that it's uh, uh, not political because there was actually uh, uh, a continuation of the investigation, but, but there was nothing new that came to light after Trump took power. Uh, there is no addition to that, uh, even though we haven't seen all the evidence, but we've seen the arguments that are presented in, in court papers. So there's nothing new that this is uh, uh, the same information which were the basis of the Obama administration deciding not to go ahead. So now it's very much the Trump administration that decides to push ahead. And we know of the animosity that is uh, among the circles there, the circle of, of Donald Trump. Uh, Mike Pompeo in particular, current Secretary of State, was of course head of the CIA um, and uh, the first one to, to brand uh, Wikileaks a, a hostile foreign intelligence service, which is, of course is outrageous. Uh, we don't know what on earth that means. Does it mean a license to kill? Or what is it? it it's uh, it's a, a very serious issue. But uh, I, I link it to the fact that uh, uh, the CIA was, of course, embarrassed when Wikileaks uh, published the, uh, the information about the cyber arsenal. Uh, it, it wasn't a very high profile leak per se, but uh, it, it did uh, produce, I think, the vindictive uh, uh, environment and which Pompeo then took with him from the CIA to the State Department. I think he's very much pushing uh, for this, and I'm fairly certain, although I don't have any confirmation, that in his rather frequent visits to uh, London to meet uh, his counterparts uh, here in the UK, there was latent or pressure to uh, to continue on this track and uh, not cave in, pretty much in the same way, way as the UK was back in the days pressuring Sweden not to stop the uh, ridiculous year-on-year year investigation uh, of, of Julian in that case, and where it actually just uh, crumbled in the end because of lack of any any evidence to secure a conviction or perform a basis of a, uh, an indictment against him. Sharon wants to know, will Julian be taking the stand and who else is due to appear on Julian's behalf? Julian will uh, not take the stand. That is uh, not the the, the, uh, the plan, as I as I know. I don't even know if it's a, it's a general practice here in the UK. He is supposed to sit there silent. He had a problem with that actually uh, two days ago, and, and, and there was an outburst when there was an obvious presentation of of distortion and lies on behalf of. Uh, the QC for the Americans, and he was actually threatened uh, with basically being removed for the rest of this uh, uh, hearing if, if that happened again. But of course, it's, it's difficult to sit there and, uh, and 
being witness to lies and, uh, and distortions about your own behavior. Uh, there's a long, very long witness list. I can't reveal the names, or not, but we will try on a daily basis, and that's that's what the lawyers want to uh, to basically supply people with uh, the witnesses of the day, uh, possibly somewhat in advance if we can. And the witness testimony, the written uh, written witness testimony, will be uh, uh, put online immediately when the witnesses enter into their witness box. Somebody asks, is this about a legal case or is it part of a larger strategy to make the story about Assange rather than the revelations that he unveiled? This has always been the case and that's part of the, the, the smear tactics that have been used at Julian over the last uh, 10 years it, to, to shift the focus. There's a good uh, article uh, uh, written by Noam Chomsky in The Independent touching on this, which appeared this morning, our time in the UK Independent, which I I urge you to to look at. It is shifting the focus away uh, from the actual uh, uh, revelations and onto the personality, then smearing the personality. So you will uh, not take a second look at the actual uh, issue at stake, uh, which is the revelation about the war crimes, the atrocities, the uh, killings, assassinations, and the hundreds of thousands of deaths resulting in these illegal wars. One question we've got here says, Assange was spied on while in the embassy. Since this involved his conversations with lawyers, can this be used in the case to overturn the charges? This will be used, of course, in the case. And it's interesting to bring that up because it's so outrageous. This is, this is of course, information coming out in an ongoing investigation, a criminal investigation in Spain against the security company that was hired to protect Julian, but then sold out uh, uh, and uh, started live streaming from the embassy to the CIA, basically, uh, all the financed by the uh, billionaire uh, backer of Donald Trump, uh, Sheldon Adelson, uh, I, Los Angeles casino mogul. Uh, an outrageous, uh, and a part of the proceeding in Spain, I've been sent recordings of, of the chats that I had with Julian. Uh, it's, it's chilling. Uh, so, but that's uh, that's secondary. The fact that uh, that uh, the conversation were, were recorded and taped and, and submitted to the opposition to the CIA, basically, well, they called it. They actually admitted this stuff in emails, and they were working for the dark side. And I, I would, uh, so they knew exactly what who they were working for. But this, these are are privileged uh, conversations he was having uh, with uh, his lawyers, Baltasar Carson, Garrett Pierce. Uh, Renata Avila, Aitor Martinez from Spain, uh, Jennifer Robinson from Australia, and, and, and Jeffrey Robinson actually as well. So all these legal conversations were monitored, and that alone, that alone, stand alone, would mean in any normal case as a perfect ground for dismissal. If I want to draw up a parallel and go back to the Nixon era, which which is basically the last sort of dark era that you have to go to, is the fact that uh, when uh, Nixon ordered the break-in into uh, uh, the uh, Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist's office to steal material to try to uh, to embarrass him, that, when that surfaced, that, that, that was led to the collapse of the case against Daniel Ellsberg. We're talking here about legal, legally privileged conversation 
with all his lawyers. All this was spied upon. All this was applied to the other side, to the U.S. agencies. Of course, it's outrageous. That should suffice in itself, in my opinion. But this is only one of so many, many things that if this was a purely legal case, I wouldn't worry at all. But this is a political case. And uh, as Scott mentioned out, it will be only resolved on, on, on the political level. Um, Christian, I know you've got to go first. Is there anything that you wanted to wrap up to say? Just in general, I mean, I'm, I'm very appreciated and, and, and I was heartened when I was in Australia uh, almost a year ago now to, to see that there was a growing growing support for this uh, the, for the, the support of Julian and against its extradition because it's of the, and people were starting to understand more clearly the, the importance of this case for, for journalists and for journalism. Uh, but of course, well, this is a, 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 an extremely serious case for an individual and uh, it's such a huge human rights violation against an Australian citizen and the combination of the two I'm, I'm sure will lead to more awareness and more support in Australia. So I'm very happy for this uh, this meeting and I'll, I'll, I hope in, in better times I can visit the country again and, uh, and hopefully, hopefully with uh, Julian at my side. Scott, any last thoughts? As long as we all know, none of us here are spectators. This is very much um, something that we can all be engaged in in the next couple of weeks. Don't you know, we're talking about a revolution that sounds Don't you know, we're talking about a revolution that sounds While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around, waiting for a promotion Don't you know, they're talking about a revolution It sounds Poor people gonna rise up and get their share Poor people gonna rise up and take what's theirs Don't you know you better run, 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 Oh, I said you better run, 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 run. Cause finally the tables are starting to turn. Talking about a revolution. Yes, finally the tables are starting to turn. Talking about a revolution, oh, oh no. Talking about a revolution, oh, oh, while they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines, sitting around waiting for a promotion. 
don't you know We're talking about the revolution It sounds Starting to turn We're talking about a revolution Yes, finally the tables Are starting to turn We're talking about a revolution Oh, no We're talking about a revolution Oh, no We're talking about a revolution Oh, no You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.